Good morning. I want to introduce to you a very wonderful part of the kingdom of God, Mark Beck, standing over here. He graduated from uh, Northwestern in St. Paul, and then he and his wife, Bree, went to uh, Cameroon, Africa, where they were with Wycliffe, and had their first child there, and then came back, and I didn't ask him in between service, but something drove him to start memorizing scripture. What was that? Basically that God's word needs to be heard, and the best way to recite it is by memorizing it. So he has memorized 13 books now, working on the book of Luke, and this morning for our scripture reading, he is going to recite 1 Samuel 7. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord, and they brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to take charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths from among you, Direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only, and he will save you from the hand of the Philistines. So all the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroths, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So the people of Israel gathered at Mizpah, and they drew water, and they poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted on that day, and they said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And they said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a a nursing lamb, and and he offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack them. But the Lord thundered with a loud sound that day against the Philistines. He, He threw them in confusion and routed them before Israel. The men of Israel went out from Mizpah. They pursued the Philistines and they struck them as far as Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone. He set it up between Mizpah and Shen. And he called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. So Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged the people of Israel all the days of his life. He went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, and he judged the people of Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he set up there an altar to the Lord.
Makes your memory verse look small, huh? (laughs) Let's go to our memory verse. Read it with me. We just heard it. Then all of the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods in the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their veils in their Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. What's an Ashtoreth? It was actually a female god of fertility, war, and love. And it's interesting that Samuel says, put away your foreign gods and your Ashtoreth. I had titled the sermon, Get Your Hands Off My Ashtoreth, because there are times when we just hold on to something and, and God says, you know, I'll take that. And we're like, nah, I don't think so. This is mine. And apparently something had happened in the life of the Israelites as they were um, overwhelmed by the Philistines and, and living in the land, that just some of the cultural things just kind of seeped in. And they didn't have to um, learn those things. It was just part of daily culture. I mean, there are things in our culture that just kind of are present. And they're not exactly godly, but we've come to accept them as culture. They're things that we're aware of, or maybe we're not aware of, but they influence us. And Samuel says, put away your foreign gods, but also your astras. Those things which you've begun to believe in. After all, the Philistines were warriors. They were winning. They won. So maybe we should kind of pay attention to this. And he's saying no. And he singles out that cultural thing. And he says, be aware and put it away. And so we've got this wonderful story that Mark just shared with us. And the big idea is if, don't you love those if-then statements? If you're returning to the Lord, then your heart, your choices, and your lifestyle have to, they must reflect that decision. Now, I'm not going to go through all the story right now because Mark just did a beautiful job doing it. We'll come back around to it in just a few minutes. It would be wonderful if they came to the Lord and they decided to follow God and Samuel said, good, that's done. I can go play golf. But that's not what happens. And I think that's maybe why Samuel says, if you're going to turn, turn to the Lord, then, kind of apprehensively saying, okay, I've been around you people a long time. I think God kind of says that because we got this if-then scenario going all through the Old Testament and into the New Testament and pretty much into our lives today. He's always reminding us that, you know, if you're going to serve me, then you need to do it fully. And Samuel's like, if you're going to do this, then this is what it's going to cost. Because God's a jealous God. He wants all of it. But it's not a have to, it's a get to. We get to serve him because he loves us. And it's in that environment that this story happens. God loves these rebellious people. 
God loves us rebellious people. And so we have this beautiful narrative and this story and Samuel gets to the end and he says, okay, if then let's see how it plays out. And it played out well for a while, at least until chapter eight, which is next week. There's a problem that we face as the American church, as the Western church, that I want to address that I think this passage addresses. And that's that for the last decades, we have separated salvation from discipleship. We've taken and talked about salvation in terms of the gospel being salvation only rather than the gospel is also what that keeps us and delivers us into heaven as Titus talks about it. And one of the major difficulties for us as Christians is that stepping into the kingdom is meant to be a complete event. There's not to be any difference between salvation and following Jesus. It's meant to be one complete thing. One of my projects one year was I, I met with 100 different pastors of evangelism across the United States. And I was appalled, actually, of how many had never even led somebody to the Lord, and they were a pastor of evangelism. Much less, one guy said to me, well, discipleship material is expensive, so we wait to see if the salvation takes. I wanted to come across the table and smack him because learning who Jesus is, learning to live in him is how our salvation takes place. And we come to Christ and then it's like, okay, everything's good. Everything's not good. We've just simply now started into the journey of walking with Jesus. One of the greatest joys for us as Christians is when our stepping into the kingdom is complete because then we find out that Christianity really does work. It really is wonderful. If I just have salvation without fully understanding what my life is supposed to look like in Jesus, it's really frustrating. But when I understand that my salvation is entry into this thing called the kingdom of God that envelops all parts of my life, it empowers all parts of my life, then this thing called Christianity is amazing and it's good. Uh, Ravi Zachariah said this, faith in Jesus Christ is a cognitive, passionate, and moral commitment that stands up under the scrutiny of the mind, the heart, and the conscience. It is not an escapist grasp that comes to the rescue when life is out of control. The Israelites had were misguided in their use of the Ark of the Covenant. They used it for personal gain. It had been captured and brought back. Now the Philistines were there. They'd been living under their rule. And they're like, help. We need to get out of the tyranny of the Philistines. Well, it's true. But that wasn't the purpose of them being God's people. The purpose of being God's people was to bring glory to God was to be an outpost of what the church was supposed to look like or the people of God were supposed to look like to everybody around them. Our life isn't supposed to be just a rescue, or salvation isn't supposed to be just a rescue of our life, it's supposed to be our life stepping into the completeness of a relationship with God. Ravi goes on and he says this, it is recasting every possible threat 
that life presents us within the design of God. It's recognizing that nothing out there happens that can't be folded into the sovereign leadership of Jesus Christ. That God is in control, he is sovereign, and he knows what's going on. I wanna illustrate it with a story. Happened in August of 2004, and I had just come back, uh, I used to work for Billy Graham Evangelical Association and trained evangelists across Europe and Russia. It was one of my projects, and I just got back from London and I was supposed to go to this camp and teach five sessions over the weekend to 150 college students. We decided we're gonna go through Jeremiah and we're gonna look at Jeremiah's heart in the midst of living in this corrupt culture that he lived in and how true he was to God's word. I was all excited, I was prepared, I was really ready to go and it was a disaster. They told me to go deep, I went deep. Kids are like, where'd he go? It was like I was scuba diving and they were snorkeling. It just didn't match. And I get up the next morning and I'm like, God, please change my notes. I looked at them, they were the same. And <laughs> I just wanted to go back to bed. So I, after breakfast, nine o'clock, second session starting. And I was taking a medicine at the time that dried me out. And so as I brought the glass of water to my um, mouth, it was like the Holy Spirit just dropped an illustration in my brain. And the picture you see on the screen is the, actually the pool that was just outside this glass wall on the other side. It's a limited sized pool and it's sitting there. It's a beautiful pool. And the thought occurred to me, these kids don't understand the difference between salvation and discipleship. They don't get it. So I took a drink and said, you know, the Bible talks about Jesus being this clear, purifying water, so the illustration's not too far off base, but how many of you have ever accepted Christ into your life? Everybody in the room put their hand up. I said, so that's kind of like, now we got a little Jesus in me. Said the problem is, has anything changed? They kind of look at me like, what are you talking about? I said, how many of you go to church on Sunday? They all put their hands up. I said, is there a big change in your life? You go to church on Sunday, but then you go to school on Monday or go to work or go whatever. Saturday night, you go to bed thinking, oh man, I gotta go to church in the morning. You get up, you go to church and the routine just begins to happen. And there's no real difference in life other than you're really good on Sunday morning because you shouldn't drink in church. And they kind of look at me like, yeah. And I said, but that's not what Paul meant when he said we were in Christ. He didn't mean put a little Jesus in you. He meant jump in the pool. Now, everything that you are is wet. Everything that you do is affected by Jesus. You can't be unwet while you're in the pool. You're simply saturated. It affects your weight, praise God. It affects <laughs> how you move. It affects how you breathe. It affects everything. And that's how Paul meant us to understand salvation into the kingdom of God. 
So when Samuel says to the Israelites, if you're going to do this, he's not talking about touching the water. He's talking about jumping in the pool. He said, okay, guys, if you're going to do this, let's get wet. Put aside all the gods, all the Ashtoreths, serving with all your heart. Where's that come up again? Heart, mind, soul. Kind of a repeating theme throughout Scripture. And if you do this, then God will deliver you from the Philistines. So we've got this beautiful picture of Samuel in verse 9 taking a lamb and sacrificing it. But what else is going on around him? Well, he's getting ready to prepare an offering for their sin because they have said, we've sinned. They've said, we've sinned against God. They've taken the water and they've put it into the big urns, which was their custom with public confession, and they've poured it out, simplifying that everything within them has, needs to be poured out. And they've fasted. Fasting doesn't mean refrain. Fasting means refraining and putting on. So we refrain food that brings nourishment and we plead God's for, for his nourishment. And there's an exchange that happens in the physical and the spiritual realm. They have said, we need, we confess that we need God. So he's preparing the sacrifice as the law had him do at that point in time. And around him are all the nations of Israel in front of him. And then the armies of the Philistines ready to attack them. See, I don't know how big people were in the nation at that time. Let's, let's just move some numbers around and let's say, let's mobilize everybody in Dane County and let's meet at, instead of Mizpah, we'll meet at uh, Prairie View uh, Golf Course over here. Well, that's going to take a little while to accomplish. That movement, I didn't, somebody in the Philistine camp said, hey, look, they're all going over to uh, the golf course. Now's a great time to attack them. They're all going to be in the same place. Well, it takes a little while to mobilize an army as well. The Israelites are like, hey, Philistines are coming. Samuel, don't stop crying out. Samuel wasn't caught up in their urgency, though, because he was just doing what God had called him to do. He was offering the sacrifice. In the same way that would point to Jesus being sacrificed several thousand years later in the midst of chaos, in the midst of spiritual warfare. The prayers are offered, the sacrifice is given, and it says God caused thunder to happen to such a degree that the Philistines were so confused that they were easily overtaken and the Israelis won. You see that happening in Exodus 33, and you see it happening at the cross. When God is invoked as God calls to be invoked with confession and repentance and supplication to him, he moves on behalf of his people. And he protected them from the hands of the Philistines. And it says, and so they went and they served the Lord. That all sounds easy. 
but it's not. The difference between, or the similarity between the students and Samuel's gang, gang was they were focused on an outward behavior. They did what they needed to do. In the Old Testament, that's what we have. We have the law, we have right behavior. In the New Testament, God says, no, I'm looking on the heart, not the outward appearance, which is really problematic for us. Well, at least it is for me, because I know how to look like a Christian. I know how to act like a Christian. I know how to talk like a Christian. I know how to be a Christian husband, Christian dad, Christian worker. I know all those things, but at the same time I'm doing those things, I can have a heart that's ugly. And Samuel knew that even though it wasn't required back then. And so he told these people, with all your heart, serve the Lord. And it's reiterated throughout the Bible. There's a picture that I use often in teaching and such, and I think it typifies our problem in the Western church in not really understanding the difference between salvation and you know, what it was meant to look like, of just putting a little Jesus in us versus really being immersed in Christ. When people ask you, what do you do? Most of us in this room would tell them what we do. I'm a plumber, I'm an accountant, I'm a teacher, I'm a mom. I'm whatever it is that you spend your time doing. Paul, however, would have answered that question differently. Paul would have said, I'm a follower of Jesus. That's my main occupation as a Christian. What I do just allows that living to happen so that I can do what I'm called to be, and that's a disciple. Well, where do you live? Well, I live in Madison, I live in Fitchburg, I live in Wanakee, I live in... No, where we live is in Christ Jesus. Now, that kind of difference in thinking helps us understand what it really means to follow him with all of your heart, all of your mind, soul, and being. We take this little gap in the middle where the life, our two life circles overlap, and we say, well, that's my Christian life. Well, the problem is, that doesn't work. In Galatians 1, 6, Paul says, what are you doing? How quickly did you move to another gospel as if there is one? See, Jesus in Luke 14, had said, if you want to be my disciple, you have to be willing to renounce everything. Matthew 6, he said, seek ye first the kingdom of God, then the rest will be added to you. It's not that we have to become monks and give up everything. That's not what the Bible's saying. It's saying that to really follow Jesus, we have to keep first things, first things. We can't let the secondary things become primary because then they're called idols. They get in the way of God in us. I love golfing. And golfing could rule me. It can be addictive. 
You can think you're going to quit your day job tomorrow and shoot a 39 every day. You know, I don't. But it could go there. But instead, I can use it in a way where I can meet my neighbor last month. Hey, you want to play golf? Yeah. I can enjoy an afternoon with Estel and recreation with my wife. I can play and, and talk to a couple guys about their faith a couple weeks ago. And I can use golf as a means to keep the primary the primary. Or it could consume me. Paul says there's only one gospel. Samuel said, it's done with all of your heart. And there isn't anything between those two. So let's look at it in a little bit different way. Oops, didn't mean to put bad on Bucky. But uh, when we come to Jesus, we repent and believe, and that moves us towards God. That triggers God, and he moves towards us. He forgives, redeems, and empowers, and now that becomes our Christian life. What do we do? We follow Jesus. That's our mission. We're disciples. That's the mission of High Point Church, is to make disciples through biblical connection and growth and service. And so that's what we do. That's what we're about. Where do we live? We live in the kingdom of God. We live in Jesus Christ. Those are things that we have to come to terms with individually because we can't come to terms for each other in those things because I look like a Christian. But what's going on in here? What's going on in here? Am I truly committed to Jesus Christ with all of my heart, mind, and soul where he truly is Lord? And that's what Samuel's trying to get across is that every part of life, regardless of what the Philistines are doing, regardless of what the market's doing, regardless, Jesus is Lord. Four comments from the text. Verse three says, put aside your idols and astros. We've talked a little bit about that. The statement I wanna make is, we don't continue with what belongs to the world when we come to God. Those things which used to rule you should no longer rule you. It doesn't mean it's always easy. Sometimes it's very difficult to stop habits. But the potential is there because God has used his goodness to deliver us. He's given us every good, perfect gift, Ephesians 1 says. The divine nature of God has been given to us so that we could be victorious in Christ Jesus, 1 Peter 3. Galatians 2 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's something that each of us have to reckon with. Um, about six months after the Haiti earthquake, I was down doing some training for pastors and I was talking to this one pastor, he's just this dynamic guy. And I don't know if you're aware of, you know, voodooism is, is the, we would call it the religion of Haiti, it's really not. It's culturally what Haitians do. 
it came over from Northern Africa when they came to the island of Haiti. And, and they wouldn't say it's a religion. They would just say it's part of culture. If you're Japanese, ancestral worship. You're, if you're an Indian, Hinduism. It's just, it's not something you put on. It's something that is a part of the culture you live in, just like secularism is part of our culture. And in those cultures, we come to terms with who Jesus is. And we're supposed to be completely called to him. So I'm talking to this pastor, and uh, he's telling me his life's history. And he says, yeah, when he came over, he said, we actually were a Christian family. Uh, my parents were Christians. He said, but an odd thing, he said, we sacrificed a chicken every Saturday night, just in case. And like, in case of what? He goes, God didn't come through. You know, maybe, maybe they were right. And, and we laughed about it, but I thought, man, what do I sacrifice just in case? What am I looking at just in case? How important is the market just in case? How important are my relationships and network just in case? What do I have out there that's become an ashtroth that I'm not even aware of that's part of culture just in case God doesn't come through? just in case he's not who he says he is. So it says they gathered at Mishwan and he drew water and they confessed and they repented. And this was so important to Samuel, probably not to the people because they were just doing what the law said to do. It didn't really have a heart impact. But Samuel knew God, he knew the heart of God, and, and so he spoke from the heart where the law really didn't. It was these actions that they had to do and fulfill. And he knew that repentance and confession had to perceive behavior. If, if it's just my behavior, I can fool you. But I can't fool God. So I have to repent. I have to make confession. And that's what drives and gives me the freedom to step into God's work. I just finished preaching a, a sermon on pornography and the effects and everything and, and how it, it takes us away from God's holiness and his intent uh, for sex. Sex was to be shared by two people and, and pornography involves a person. It's against what God's intent was and how it affects a person and his spouse and and this guy comes up and he's starting to sweat and um, he called me by name I knew he and his wife pretty well and he says uh, Pastor Mike I uh, about um, about five weeks ago I, I started getting involved in pornography and about that time his wife walked across and I caught her eye and said come here and he's just like, I mean, the fire hose under his skin lit up and the sweat just popped out. I think I got wet. And he says, no, she can't know, she can't know. I said, well, she's your wife, it'll be okay. I knew this couple really well. I knew what kind of woman she was and, and how she prayed and, and I knew what her heart was towards God and she comes up and and he's looking at me like, please get me out of here. Don't do what I think you're going to do. And I said, go ahead and tell her. 
I said, it's not my problem. Tell her, she's your wife. about five weeks ago, and that's all he got out. And his wife said, I know. God showed me that you've been in pornography, and I've been praying you, praying for you for five weeks. He just hit his knees, crying, repenting, confessing. And she was able to extend mercy and grace out of his position of confession. And I said, let's get together this week and let's begin working out a plan of walking out. And about a month later, I saw him walk in. She's got her arm through his and said, how you doing? And she said, we're doing great. When we put off all the idols, when we put off all of the things that have power over us, when we renounce all those things, we put ourselves in a position where we can be disciples of Jesus Christ, where we can truly be followers where we can stand and make confession of I am in Christ Jesus. It's what I do. It's where I live. It's what I'm known by. And it means something deep because we've done more than just get in the door. We've jumped in the pool and we live fully in the kingdom of God. They asked him, please don't stop praying. We see the enemy. Prayer from a right stance serves to realign our relationship with God and positions us to receive his blessings and his protection. Early in ministry, there was a couple in the church that um, I would call them the country club Christians. They were fairly wealthy. They uh, looked good. Nice cars, nice kids, nice home, nice people. Nice business, generous. Then he had an affair. Well, she was a shrewd businesswoman. She had 51% of the company in her name. And she promptly put him on an allowance and uh, put down the terms, which are get your life together, come back to God, we'll work it out. He said no, divorced her. And for seven years, she did something very, very unique she began to become a woman of prayer. She didn't pray for retribution. She didn't pray to get what she deserved. She didn't pray that he would get what he deserved. She prayed that God would redeem the situation. She called in some consultants, got rid of some of the unethical stuff in the business. The business prospered, and seven years later, there's a knock on her door. It was her husband. Will you please forgive me? Her heart was right because she had been serving God with all of her heart, soul, and mind. She had taken on his capacity for grace and mercy. And she could extend it. Six months later, they got married again. And they were no longer country club Christians. They were sold-out Christians for Jesus Christ. But it was because of a prayer, a conversation with God that was relentless. It did not cease. And in that unceasingness, God was able to give her everything that he had desired her to have. 
And Samuel took a stone and he set an altar. One of the things that God says to the people of Israel and throughout the New Testament is remember. Please, remember what I've done for you because I know your memories are, are going to fail you. Corinthians, the Lord's Supper, Paul says, remember when you take this. Remember the sacrifice that I did for you freely. Remember the blood that was shed so that your sins could be forgiven. Remember my love for you. And he made an altar. In our lives, where do we build our altars? What are we doing so that we remember God's goodness? Where do we remember to thank him for the prayers that he answered instead of just rehearsing another list? Where do we take the time to tell the stories and to recount his blessings? It's so important because it keeps us on track. It keeps us remembering. We come here every week so that we remember that this is what we're about because the world around us, the culture around us would like to tell us we're about something different. But we're not. We're about Jesus. We're disciples. What we do is we follow him. We live a life that's consistent, that's congruent with the kingdom of God because that's where we live at. It's what we're known for. I want to encourage you to say this with me again. Oops, we lost some words. Life is sometimes like this memory verse. Not all the blanks are always filled in. But we know what's there. We know what's supposed to be there, and that's faith. And we can live it out, even though we don't fully understand the big picture. So you ready to recite it with me? Then all of the people, you're not with me. I'll tell you what, I'm going to turn this off. How important is it that we hide God's word in our hearts so we do not sin against him? How important is it that we take just words on a page and learn them so that we're reminded when we come up against culture tomorrow that that doesn't define us, that Jesus does. Why did Nick take us through a longer memory verse that reminded us that his divine power has given us everything? God has done his part, but then what's it say in the bold? Make every effort, church. Make every effort, Christian, to live out and to walk in the very thing that he's given you. If you are going to serve the Lord, 
then you must put away every foreign idol in Ashtaroth and serve him with all of your heart. The worship team's gonna come up. And we're gonna sing two songs that are songs of confession about what we just talked about. Now, I know that some of you are uneasy right now because we're just a bunch of sinners in the rooms redeemed by God's grace. And some of us have been holding on to and walking the line. We look like Christians, but there's something empty going on. This is the time covered by music, covered by this confession of who Jesus is, that you don't have to sing. Instead, you can have a conversation with Jesus where you can say, that's about me. And I've got a few things that I've held on to I don't want your hands on, but I'm willing to give them up. See, I'm willing to be more than saved, I'm willing to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to stand. And if you only need to step into the confession that he is Lord, then sing away in all your heart. But if you need to this morning, say that's me, then have a conversation while the rest of us are singing. And I'll come back in a few minutes and close this out. Let's stand.